welcome to Dear Prudence. I'm your Prudence, Janae Desmond-Harris. Today, we'll be discussing what to do when you discover your birthday gift and hate it, how to avoid losing respect for a partner who procrastinates, and whether it's a problem to spend five minutes to five hours a day in intense romantic daydreams. Here to help me out are Liz Neely and Ed Young. Liz is a marine biologist by training, and she's the founder of Liminal Creations a strategy and consulting firm focused on science communications. Ed is a science journalist who you may know from his reporting on the COVID-19 pandemic. He's a Pulitzer winner, and he's the author of two New York Times bestsellers, An Immense World and I Contain Multitudes. They're also my first married couple guests on the podcast. I was chatting with them before and telling them that just based on my Instagram research, I also think they're a really good couple. So they're kind of going to be my relationship experts today, if that's okay. Anyway, welcome to the show, Ed and Liz. Thank you. Hello. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you for coming on. And as always, before we get started, I want to ask each of you for one piece of unsolicited advice about anything in the world. Ed, why don't you go first? Okay. Um, so I think my piece of unsolicited advice is ironically solicit advice. Mm. I've often found that when people um, are told problems, like when one of the one of your friends is like complaining about something going wrong, there's this very strong urge to immediately leap in with advice um, and like things to do. And, and I found that a much better approach is to just listen very intensely and then ask if advice is needed or mm-hmm. appreciated first. Very, very important step because, you know, if you give that unsolicited advice, people get annoyed with you so fast. Also, I know. you're then responsible for what happens, you know, if they take your advice and it turns out wrong. But if they ask for it, they <laughs> ask for it. <laughs> anyway, Liz, um, what's your piece of advice? I really struggled to only come up with one. <laughs> I gave Ed like 18 yesterday. (laughs) I realized I have one that I come back to all the time. And this is, you cannot change a feeling with a fact. Not for yourself, not for other people. Like I can nerd out and talk about persuasion and like research on psychology of why, but it also comes down to like, when I'm upset about something and I'm like, no, but I, I know, you know, and list all the following things I know. It's just like, that's not how feelings work. So it's really not, it's really not like let your feelings be your feelings and focus on the things you can control. That's, that's Mm -hmm. my unsolicited advice. Top tier. (laughs) It makes you easier on yourself if you're not always trying to change your feelings based on what you think they should be. Right. And I think like, People often get mad because they're like, well, I don't want to have this feeling. But I think feelings point you towards really important values. Like if something feels unfair, that tells you you value justice. If something feels so true, makes you angry, that probably means like you're defending something or someone, maybe yourself. Like listen to what those feelings are telling you and then act accordingly. They can give you really good information. After this is over, I'm going to ask you to email me the other 17 pieces of advice. <laughs> and if I end up using them in the column, I will credit you. Okay, so more advice like that when we get back from a short break. Can't get enough Dear Prudence? Then you should definitely join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. You'll get to hear me answer an extra question every week just for members. 
With your subscription, you get ad-free listening across the Slate network and unlimited reading on the Slate site, including all Dear Prudence columns, past and present. Go to slate.com forward slash Prudy Plus to sign up. It's just $15 for your first three months. Again, that's slate.com forward slash Prudy Plus. Welcome back. You're listening to Dear Prudence, and I'm here with Ed Young and Liz Neely. Let's get started with our first letter. It's titled Outdoor Ingrate. While cleaning, I found my birthday gift. It's a very fancy, very specific piece of equipment for my outdoor hobby. I like this hobby in part because of its simplicity. I like the single piece of equipment I currently use, and it's all I need. I don't want to lug this thing around with me, but it's a thoughtful gift. I know my husband must have researched my hobby to find this, and especially to find one so well-regarded. It's also quite expensive. I feel ungrateful, but I'm already dreading lugging this thing around. It removes the spontaneity of my hobby and makes it overly technical. I'd prefer if he were to get me anything related to my hobby that he just get me a fancier version of what I already use and actually join me on some of my excursions. Do I tell him? I'm not good at faking enthusiasm. I think this is the kind of letter that's really challenging to answer because um, there are some relationships in which you could just say, hey, by the way, I found the present. Do not get me the super turbo walking stick. I don't want it. Can we? Can you get me something else? And there are other relationships where that would be um, heartbreaking and cause a huge conflict. I'm guessing that this letter writer and her spouse fall on sort of the latter side because otherwise um, she wouldn't be writing this letter. Ed, I know you have outdoor hobbies, right? Yes. And and actually, we were talking about this yesterday, and I, I feel like I've got a reasonably good guess as to what all of the things are here. I think that this letter writer is a birder. Mm-hmm. I think that the piece of equipment that she already owns is a pair of binoculars, and the present is a spotting scope. A spotting scope. So it's like a much more powerful monocular and needs a tripod to operate and it's just a big clunky thing to lug around but it's also a cool thing that like a lot of birders want ask me how i know about what a birding scope is (laughs) (laughs) liz may or may not have had several hints say you didn't want it and you found out liz had purchased it for you and you stumbled upon it in the closet what would you do i think we are on the talk about it uh, spectrum mm-hmm. uh, that that you laid out, right? Like, I don't think that this has to be a choice between faking enthusiasm and, like, n- nothing, right? I-, I think you can openly discuss, like, that this maybe isn't quite what you wanted, but that you really appreciate the thought of it. Like, I think it, it sort of depends on what you're trying to do with gifts. When I give gifts, it's really about the effort put into the gift, like the thought that went into it, mm-hmm. rather than like demanding that the recipient, you know, gets material use out of the actual tangible object. And, you know, I, I think that appreciation of the thought is clearly evident in the letter. Like she sees the amount of effort that went into it. And, and I think that's more important than the actual thing. Mm-hmm. So, okay, just one more question. If you stumbled upon the big, heavy, annoying birding scope thing in the closet before your birthday, would you tell Liz you found it? 
Or would you wait and open it and then say, oh my gosh, this took so much research. This is really, really thoughtful. I actually don't want to carry something this heavy. Can we exchange it for something else? Would you do it before or after? In this specific case, I think I would wait because I know that Liz loves surprising me with stuff. Mm -hmm. So that's like just keeping the sanctity of that is one way of like returning the favor of the gift. Okay. Yeah. I really like the idea of thinking about the intention, you know, the gift giver's intention and the receiver's attention when it comes to what receiving the gift means for the relationship and means to their partner. I feel like there's just, there's so much space between I've received this particular gift from my partner and oh no, I'm now constrained to drudgery of carrying this thing around that I don't want to, right? I think it's it's that foregone conclusion that's the problem for this letter. It's not either or. That's a fake choice. Mm-hmm. Um, honestly, I got upset when I read this letter because I was like, oh no, your partner gave you a really thoughtful thing that he like did research about. He pays attention to your hobbies enough that he tried to choose something for you. Like, come on. I mean, especially in a world in which there are so many letters from women, and this is gendered, who are saying, my husband just doesn't give gifts. You know, he doesn't believe in it. I think there's a gendered thing here. And she says, I feel ungrateful. And I thought, well, kind of because you are being ungrateful, but it's okay. Mm-hmm. Like, it's okay that you don't want it. And it's okay to share that when you talk about it. You know, I I know that you put so much work into this and I feel ungrateful saying this. And I, I do really appreciate the effort. I just would prefer to have something else. Can we go return it together? Yeah. Do you know what really jumped out at me in the letter? What? The line, I wish he would actually join me on some of my excursions. Yeah. It was that actually... That actually told a whole story to me. Um, totally. That what the letter writer really wants is company and companionship more than material things. So I wonder if there's a place to bring that up. Maybe not in the conversation about this gift, which could be sensitive and could feel like a conflict. But I would encourage her to really push for that. Explain to your husband how much you would love him to be with you when you're doing your hobby and how that might mean more than any material thing. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, our next question is titled Ignored Scribe. I'm an author. No books published yet, but 20 plus short stories and poems published in various publications over the past seven years or so. Definitely not a lucrative side hustle at all. I submit my work to journals because I want my words out there in the world. And let's be honest, validation and praise of my work as I have a massive case of imposter syndrome. I have an author webpage, and when a piece is published, I post links on my page, then post website updates on various social media. That way, I can track where the visitors come from. And only once, once in seven years, has one come from my hometown. And I know who that was because she told me so. My parents have never looked at my site never read my publications, neither have any of my friends from my hometown, including a friend I have known for 30 plus years. I know writing is a subjective taste and people have lives and issues of their own, but it's not like I'm asking them to spend hours reading my shit. I've published six pieces this year, seven last year. It's not excessive. I asked my mom if she'd read a new poem and all she said was she bookmarked it to read it later. Yet my sister, who is accomplished in a different creative field, regularly gets lauded by my mom. I know I shouldn't care because I have a stalwart, if small group of friends who regularly cheer me on and share my work, but it still smarts. 
how do I deal with this? So I had, this is the second similar question I've had in about a month. I definitely get it. There are a lot of people out there who are writers and who are really hurt that um, their friends and family members are not engaging with their work. I actually think it's almost charming and kind of funny. And I don't know what you've experienced, but I know that I've been writing for a while and plenty of people in my life have not read a word that I've written or mm-hmm. listened to this podcast, as I've said before. There's a part of me that thinks it is sweet when people love you for who you are and not um, the work you produce, whether it's your full-time work or your creative work. I totally agree. I feel a lot for this letter writer. You know, I, I know what it's like to want validation for your work. That bit about I can track where the visitors have come from. I also know what it's like to obsessively pour over analytics in a deeply mm. unhealthy way. So I, I sympathize a lot. I think two things here. The first is it's just a really bad idea to demand that the loved ones in your life appreciate your art. Like, mm-hmm. no matter what artistic venture you're striking out on, like, it's inherently subjective for a start. So people might just not like what you write, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and everyone has so much stuff on their hands. And it might feel like it's not, it doesn't take a lot of time to read a poem that I write like every once every two months, but it, it is actually still an ask and one that I don't think you should oblige the people in your life to go through. So we actually have a, a funny story about this. Um, Elizabeth Neely took a, let's just say, surprising amount of time to finish a book written by her husband. <laughs> That was, in fact, dedicated to her. See, here's the thing. If these friends and family members are very close to you, depending on what your creative process is like, they are there for every breath and every thought and many of the drafts and many of the stories. And so they've been steeped in the process the entire time. So maybe some of them might go a little slowly because formally reading the book that happens to be dedicated to them is merely the final instantiation of like a years long process of loving and supporting you. This kind of hurt my heart. And I just wanted to say like, let, like you said at the beginning, let the people in your life love you the way that they can in the times that they can. Like maybe her mom just doesn't read poetry. That might actually be a big ask. But also the thing that really stood out to me for this letter writer is they say that they have this stalwart small group of friends who cheer them on and not only read and engage with their work, but share it. Like you're devaluing those champions in your life by only focusing on the other people who somehow their approval feels like means more to you. That made me sad. This actually touches on a a broader theme about like friendship and connection that Liz and I talk about quite a lot yeah. um, that doesn't have anything to do with the enjoyment of art or the you know the, the engagement of the same like the two of us most of our closest friends are people we've known for actually a fairly short amount of time like say you know five years ten, 10 years or so and we don't really have people who we've known our entire lives or are from our hometown and and I think partly that's because we kind of independently realize that a lot of the ways in which we've been acculturated to think about the value of friendship are these axes like duration that that actually don't matter that much. You know, what, what matters to us are shared values or like mutual support. All of these things 
are so much more important than like how long you've known someone for. But those are the things that, that often get talked about in terms of your friendships. You know, like I've known this person since we were at school together. Like we grew up together. That's sort of a marker for, and therefore we have a really strong friendship. Like, is it? And that's what I agree with Liz. Like I, I made that piece where she's sort of ignoring this small stalwart group of friends who are regularly supporting her in favor of courting approval from people she seems to think should be closer to her mm-hmm. is is really sad. And I think it speaks to how we've been trained to think about which people in our lives actually matter. Definitely. I think social media complicates it too, because these people who are not reading our hometown friends, that tells me that without Facebook and Instagram, these are people who just would have fallen out of your life by now. I love what you said, Ed, about confusing duration for like depth or value of friendship. And I received so many letters like that with someone saying, my longtime best friend is not showing up for me as a bridesmaid. And then it turns out they really don't even talk that much. They've just known each other since they were in fourth grade. And I'm often encouraging people to ask, is that really your friend? Or is it just someone who you still kind of keep tabs on who used to be your friend? Yeah. And I think this letter highlights that that's a tragedy for the individual person, but there's also a big opportunity cost to not to like wrongly labeling your best friend based on duration because you are then spending less time on and less emotional energy on people who might actually be much better friends to you right now. That's so smart. When I first read this letter, I kind of, I thought to myself, okay, there, you have to pick an angle here. You either are going to try to make people read your stuff or you're going to have to get over it. So if you really want to make people read, social media, again, can be a great tool for that. It's a great tool to broadcast a message. Everyone, my writing is really, really important to me. If you are reading this, please click on the link and let me know what you thought. But be careful what you ask for. Be careful what you ask for because I feel like the right strategy here is like make your own weird art and like let your audience find you. Don't try and force your aesthetic or, you know, interests onto friends and family because what happens when they start becoming critics and you don't like what they have to say? Do you want them to lie to you? I don't think so. Right. So yeah, I think we all agree that the right angle is not to force people to read your poems, but to try to get over it, which is tough. Liz, this is going to be a hard question, but it ties Mm -hmm. back to the advice you gave in the beginning about how emotions tell you something. So the letter writer's sadness, and I might even say a sense of betrayal here. Yeah. What should they do with that? What's it telling them? I was picking up on so many different like angles on this too. Like there's jealousy of the sister who is being supported by their mom. I think there's like the desire for your parents to be proud of you. Mm -hmm. They talk about imposter syndrome. I think sort of laying it all out and asking, why are you doing this writing? They said they've been doing it for 20 years. That's so much energy. Like this must, this is pouring out of them. When I feel these kinds of emotions, right? I think about like, what's, what's this telling me? Is it telling me I need to be more direct with my mom of asking for support? Mm-hmm. Is it telling me I need to, I don't know, maybe work on my own craft of like, am I doing everything I possibly can to feel proud and connected and seen by the audience or the other members of my creative profession. 
Yeah, it could be, you know, I wish my parents were closer to me and really knew me and appreciated me for who I am. And maybe the answer to that is spending time in person and trying to actually reconnect Mm -hmm. and actually give them a sense for who you are and a reason to care rather than um, forcing poems in their face. You're listening to The Dear Prudence Show. And when we come back, we'll be reading more of your letters. Stay with us. Welcome back to Dear Prudence. I'm here with my guests, Liz and Ed, to answer your letters. And the next one is titled, Supportive But Frustrated. I love my boyfriend dearly. Our shared interests, sense of humor, intellectual pursuits, sexual chemistry, and aspirations are all aligned. We have inevitable conflict, but we've become very good at communication and repair. We want the same things out of life and are thrilled to have met our match. But alas, the catch. He's a terrible procrastinator. Some context. He recently transitioned to a role in a tech company while still maintaining his own engineering company. He has pressing deadlines on important projects for both jobs. For example, he'll give himself a full weekend day to get everything done, which, if focused on, comes to about two to three hours of work. But in the face of such overwhelm, he turns to YouTube and Twitter to scroll for hours to numb the stress. By the end of the day, he'll have nothing done and then stay up till 1 or 2 a.m. scrambling to get finished. Now that he goes to bed late, he struggles to wake up early to exercise and take care of himself, and he's gained significant weight in the last six months with all this. With all this stress, he chain smokes to, quote, take the edge off. He seems to be caught in this vicious cycle of self-sabotage, and I don't know how to help him. I know these are his problems, but I want to support him in the best way I can. I just don't know how to do that without coming across as criticizing, judgmental, or nagging. I do ask him how I can best support him, but even when I put his suggestions into practice, they seem to have no effect. It's starting to affect how I look at him and is seriously making me question if this is someone that I can go through life with long term. I don't want to end this relationship, but I fear it may get to a point where I can't take his procrastination and his self-sabotaging coping strategies anymore. He's aware that this is a problem, and we've talked about what can change, but so far, nothing works. So my questions are, how can I not let his procrastination affect me so much? How can I best support someone clearly struggling with this much stress? And how can I accept this about him without losing respect for him? So the first time I read this letter, I thought it sounded really sad and a little bit hopeless. And then I read it again, and I took a different view, which is, is it really that bad? Okay, he's a terrible procrastinator. He has a job and a side gig. So this isn't someone whose procrastination has left him unemployed. His life isn't falling apart. I don't read anything about him neglecting his responsibilities around the house, being grumpy, being unkind. The only thing I can really point to as a consequence is he's gained some weight. Okay, who among us hasn't? He's smoking, probably not great for his health. But I'm wondering if this is really the crisis the letter writer feels it is. I do see it as a crisis, but I think her framing of saying this is about procrastination isn't quite how I read it. 
Oh, yeah. Say more. If this was a friend of mine, I'd say, honey, do you maybe know the answer to these questions already in your heart of hearts and you just don't like what you're seeing? Like you said, she doesn't explicitly say he's not helping around the house or he's got anger or things like that. But I think she starts by saying we have sense of humor. We have great sex. We have like shared interests. But then she's also saying he's working on the weekends. He's staying up all night. He's smoking a lot. He's gaining weight. And I can't help but wonder, is that having an impact on their sex life, on the humor Mm. that they share, on the time, the quality of their time together? And so... I feel like like her instinct to try and get to the root cause is not helping. And instead, hmm. the things that are directly in his control that are directly harming her about like losing weekend days, the worries about his health, um, those are things to focus on. But I think this is really hard and scary because in relationships, when you start to lay down ultimatums, because like my instinct is to say that you can't do this work for him. Like you can't fix him. You can't love somebody out of these problems. If you take on that role of his mother, psychologist, babysitter, doctor, that's not going to make him more attractive to you. Not at all. It's not going to make him like you anymore. And so it is so scary to think about putting down an ultimatum. And she says he's aware that this is a problem, but is he aware that she's at a point where she's lost faith that this is a long-term relationship she wants to spend her life in? If he's not, he needs to know. I do think that there is what feels to me like a gendered component to um, some of the questions that she asks at the end. The way she frames it, it really is as if he gets to experience these problems and feel his feelings and she must kind of bend to it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she asks, like, how can I not let his procrastination affect me so much? Or like, how can I best support him? How can I accept this about him? Like, a lot of this is for him to deal with and not just to deal with as a problem that he has, but as a problem that is affecting both of them. Mm -hmm. Staying up late, not having time at the weekends, like all all of that, that isn't just about him. It's it's about the relationship. And, you know, I I think it needs to be framed in in that way. I speak about this as as someone who fully recognizes that that feeling of um, going through mental health challenges that are affecting my relationship and like prioritizing, like trying to solve that because of that. Mm. So it's not just because it's a problem I need to solve, but because it's a problem for us. Like it's, it's rippling out to the people around me. Right. And that can't stand. And I think this question of how do I best support a partner who's struggling feels to me like there's two like immediate pathways. One is ask them, like, how do they want and need to be supported? And then the second piece is look for like release valves, right? It sounds like he's just under intense pressure. Is there, and I'm not saying this is on her, but on the the letter writer, but like, is there anything that they might be doing? Are they constantly talking about money and fears about money, which means that Mm -hmm. the partner feels like they have to hold down two jobs? Hmm. We, of course, want everybody to be their best selves in partnership, but it's not always 50-50. And it might very well be that for a period of time, she's going to hold a lot more of the stress and maybe some unhappiness um, in that relationship. And that's okay if it's time bounded, right? So like, but just the, this is our new normal and it's never going to get better. And I just have to deal. That makes me sad. Yeah. I think something very important that you 
both touched on is that he needs to know not just that she's worried about him and she thinks it's a problem that he's staying up late, he needs to drink more water or whatever, but that there's a problem in their relationship as a result of his lifestyle. Um, I have a feeling she hasn't said that to him. You know, I think she said, I'm worried about your chain smoking. You're not getting sleep. Um, You keep coming up on these deadlines and using bad coping mechanisms. And he might be saying, yeah, yeah, but I just need to push through and wait until, you know, the next quarter and then it'll get better. But he should know that he might not have until next quarter to keep a happy relationship. She's rapidly losing respect for him and attraction to him. And I think he deserves and she would benefit from um, raising a red flag about that and making it known. And then offering Liz, like you said, asking, how can I support you? Um, Because it doesn't have to be all on him to solve it, but he should know what the stakes are. And then he might be more motivated to. Once you've had these conversations, give yourself a break from the obsessive focus on his schedule, his shortcomings, um, how he's organizing his life. I find that when I'm being super wound up and critical about someone else, honestly, there's something that's bothering me about myself. So letter writer, I fully believe that, you know, your day-to-day life is healthier and happier than his right now. But is there something that you could turn your attention to that would be rewarding to work on and that would make you feel better rather than putting all your focus on him, which is frustrating because what he does is ultimately out of your control. This is Dear Prudence. We need to take a break, but when we come back, more letters from you and advice from us. Stay tuned. I'm Janae, and you're listening to Dear Prudence. Ed Young and Liz Neely have been here helping me out, and we've reached our last question for the day. It's titled Fantasy Lover. I am a 24-year-old female who is a maladaptive dreamer. I daydream about a whole other fantasy world with fantasy characters and immerse myself in it for five minutes to five hours every day. I've become so attached to this world and the people in there that I feel like I stifled my relationship with the real world. The daydreams even have a romantic element to them where I developed romantic feelings with someone I daydream about. They don't even exist in real life. I've been doing this since I was 11. It breaks my heart. I know it's not real, yet it's such a comfort to me that nothing else can ever compare. I can't ever get someone in real life to know what I'm thinking just by looking at my face, but my daydreaming guy can. Everyone in real life is just a disappointment. I've developed an aversion to reality. I can't connect with anyone, family, friendship, or romance, although I've tried several times. I can't feel happy or content about anything, not even nature, because nothing can ever come close to my fantasy world. I have so many mental breakdowns about how I can never be in that world, how I can never be with my daydreaming lover. I just feel so extremely and utterly lonely. The only reason I'm living is because of daydreaming. How on earth do I be content with living in reality when none of it comes close to fantasy? My first thought when I read this was, okay, so you're daydreaming for up to five hours a day, but you know, I've seen my screen time reports and I'm pretty sure that I'm on Instagram, TikTok, X, and other social media for the same amount of time. Like 
I mean, we all have our vices. And if this is what's helping you cope, maybe don't beat yourself up about it so much. That said, this is obviously really upsetting to the letter writer. And they are really struggling to find any enjoyment um, or connection at all in real life. So it is a real problem, um, if only because it's causing them so, so much angst. The one really pierced me and I want to talk straight to the letter writer or anybody who feels this way. Loneliness is excruciating. It's why solitary confinement is torture, right? Like a lack of meaningful connection to other people in your life is so, so hard. And it is, it is truly physically painful. And I'm sorry about all the things like large and small, like way back when you were 11 to what's happened now that gets you to this point. I'm glad they're asking for help. Um, I'm glad they're here. Mm -hmm. The intensity of this and saying, I don't find joy in nature. I can't feel anything. I don't feel connected to anyone. The only reason I'm living is because of this. There are people who can help. Mm -hmm. The crisis text line is a great place to start on text or chat or WhatsApp. There's a commonality here to everybody. Like no one has ever loved anybody the way that everyone wants to be loved in a dream world, right? Like wouldn't it be fantastic if we could just find someone who could look at our face and without ever talking to us into it, every last element of our wishes that that can't happen real life relationships are so hard because it's just perpetually being vulnerable, putting yourself out there, asking for something. Even the closest people have infinite chasms between them. Like it's, it's just being human is the process of stretching and reaching across those gaps. And it it is hard. (laughs) So maybe, maybe this person needs help, but also like, I just want to say like, we all have coping solutions this one's kept this person with us this this long. And the important thing is being able to recognize when a world, a story, a coping mechanism doesn't serve us anymore. It's not right. It's not what we need to move forward. And then the hard work of figuring out how we replace it can begin. And I would add, as coping mechanisms go, this isn't a terrible one. I'm kind of proud of you for coming up with this creative one. It's not drugs or alcohol. It's not being abusive to other people. You've found a way to survive. It's free. You made it up yourself. I think that really speaks to the letter writer's toughness. That said, I don't think they should have to continue being that tough. And they absolutely deserve help. Not with the daydreams. The daydreams can continue with the feelings about life outside the daydreams. I also think that like in the whole cast of characters in this fantasy world, we have the romantic interest. But the letter writer themselves is a fantasy character. And I Mm -hmm. think we often imagine ourselves as as like braver or kinder or whatever it might be. And I wonder if maybe like those first steps might be asking, what can I do in my own life with who I really am or how I am and how I treat things, how I act, what I do? Um, That would bring me closer to who I am in this fantasy world. Absolutely. What are the feelings you have there? What are your connections like? What exactly is making it great? And how can you get your mental health to a place where if you do encounter a piece of real life that mirrors your amazing fantasy world, that you're able to receive it and appreciate it? And that is it for the week. I hope it's been helpful and we definitely had fun. Ed and Liz, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having us. You can keep up with Ed's writing by subscribing to his newsletter, The Ed's Up, or by following him on Blue Sky at edyoung209. 
Read all about Liz's work at liminalcreations.com. Do you need help getting along with partners, relatives, coworkers, and people in general? Write to me. Go to slate.com forward slash prudy. That's slate.com forward slash P-R-U-D-I-E. The Dear Prudence column publishes every Thursday. If you'd like to hear your question answered on the podcast, we're looking for letter writers who would be comfortable recording their questions for the show. You can stay anonymous. Dear Prudence is produced by Sierra Spragley-Ricks with a special thanks to Maura Curry. Editorial help from Paola de Verona. Daisy Rosario is senior supervising producer and Alicia Montgomery is Slate's VP of Audio. I'm your dear Prudence, Janae Desmond-Harris. Until next time. 